You're listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity titled, Best Practices for Managing Diabetic Retinopathy, Improving Your Care Plans Today, is provided in partnership with the National Eye Institute of the National Institutes of Health of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, along with Prova Education. It's supported by an independent educational grant from Regeneron Pharmaceuticals. Before starting this activity, please be sure to review the disclosure statements as well as the learning objectives. Here's Dr. David Brown. The rising prevalence of diabetes and diabetic retinopathy, along with it, is a serious public health issue. We as eye care professionals have an important role actively screening, referring, and treating patients with diabetic eye disease. As the science continues to evolve, we're finding more ways to help these patients. So what are the latest data surrounding non-proliferative diabetic retinopathy, and how should it affect our practice as ophthalmologists? This is CME on ReachMD, and I'm Dr. David Brown. And I'm Dr. Rishi Singh in Cleveland Clinic in Cleveland, Ohio. And I'm here today to talk to David about diabetic retinopathy and the growing epidemic we're seeing. Can you tell us about how uh, you monitor patients with diabetic retinopathy and how it sort of forms over time? Sure. We know that uh, hyperglycemia or high blood sugars hurt the small blood vessels all over the body. And the eye is sort of the canary in the coal mine. It's the first place that really most patients see end organ damage. And over time, you, you see uh, from very faint changes like uh, intraretinal hemorrhages and dilated vessels uh, to more uh, worrisome signs like proliferative diabetic retinopathy and diabetic macular edema. There are, you know, when you look at NPDR, we kind of look at a progression. And years ago, they figured out that if you have hemorrhages in four quadrants, uh, the 421 rule, or venous beating, which means kind of sausage-like enlargement of the veins in over two quadrants, or interretinal microvascular abnormalities, which are the very beginning buds of neovascularization in any quadrant, you're really at high risk to going on to PDR, which was the main cause of blindness for years with diabetic retinopathy. Before the ETRS used uh, the criteria for the use of PRP uh, to where you had to have uh, quite a significant amount of neovascularization, either over a third of the disc area or multiple areas of a disc uh, around the peripheral retina associated with vitreous hemorrhage before you do panretinophytic coagulation. Uh, the reason the reticence to do panretinophytic coagulation early is that laser causes damage. The reason it's working is those, those areas of retina have decreased blood supply. And it's that hungry blood supply that's saying, I'm hungry. I want more blood supply. So the way to have an effective laser is to kill off that peripheral retina. You're actually giving up some peripheral visual field, though. And patients really notice that as you progress on with more severe, uh, with more severe laser. Uh, fortunately, we're able to attack directly that I'm hungry factor, that the, the main one, which is VEGF, uh, with pharmacologic agents which are injected into the eye. Rishi, uh, do, what data, what's our initial data about uh, the success of anti-VEGF in, in NPDR? Uh, in other words, RISE-RIDE was for diabetic macular edema, and that's what it was approved for, uh, but what did those data show us about potential progression of NPDR uh, to either PDR or regression of NPDR to a less risky stage? 
Dave, the studies you mentioned are probably the most pivotal trials for our understanding about how anti-VEGF therapy can go and treat diabetic retinopathy. And that wasn't the intention initially, as you mentioned. It was to treat diabetic macroedema. But in Rise and Ride, they enrolled patients who had moderate to severe retinopathy, and even some patients had proliferative disease, and treated them with ranibizumab for the treatment of diabetic macroedema, and found a variety of secondary endpoints related to their diabetic retinopathy progression. Uh, the first and foremost thing is they found a significant number of patients not going on to develop vision-threatening complications from diabetic retinopathy, including vitrectomy and vitreous hemorrhages and other uh, sort of visual loss issues related to these conditions. Uh, one of the other interesting endpoints that they found from the Rise and Ride trials was there were a significant number of patients, 30% or 35% of patients who developed a uh, two-step retinopathy improvement across the board regardless of their baseline retinopathy scoring. And those in the highest category of severe nonproliferative disease actually had a very significant rate of two-step retinopathy improvement of about 60 to 75% of patients achieving a two-step retinopathy scoring. So these, this study was the first trial we sort of had as a pivotal study to show us that not only were we treating the diabetic macular edema, but we were also treating uh, diabetic retinopathy as a result of that. We then went on to the Vivid and Vista trials, which used aflibercept for the treatment of diabetic macular edema. And in this study, they were a little bit stricter about enrolling patients with just uh, severe, uh, moderate to severe nonproliferative disease. And they were able to then also show very similar endpoints with regards to the same efficacy with first reducing uh, visual threatening retinopathy complication events like vitreous hemorrhage and going on to developing proliferative disease and neovascular glaucoma and additionally showing a significant percentage of patients who had a two-step retinopathy scoring over the period of time they received a flibrocept in this pivotal study. So Rishi, data from Rise Ride Vista Vivid uh, show us that anti-VEGF agents can be helpful uh, in the progression or prevention of progression of non-proliferative diabetic retinopathy. Uh, however, there's a new study, Panorama, which is interesting in that it tests these agents in the absence of diabetic macular edema. Uh, can you tell us about the Panorama trail? Dave, the Panorama study was a, a critical understanding of how these patients that are most at risk of developing proliferative disease uh, were treated and affected by anti-VEGF therapy. And in Panorama, patients were randomized to either sham treatment or two different frequencies of flibrocept over a 52-week period where the primary endpoint was determined. And that primary endpoint was actually the proportion of patients who achieved a two-step retinopathy improvement over the course of the study. This study went on to week 100. And we know the data from the week 52 results, which have shown a significant improvement in two-step retinopathy scoring in those patients who either with flibrocept versus sham treatment. You saw almost a 79% rate of two-step retinopathy scoring in those patients who received a flibrocept every eight weeks versus those patients who were in the Q16-week group or quarterly dosed a flibrocept group who achieved almost a 65.2% rate of two-step retinopathy score improvement. So the study overall has really shown some true benefits in patients uh, developing two-step retinopathy improvements and uh, decreased rates of these visual threatening retinopathy complications we see normally with the development of proliferative diabetes over time. Yeah, that's super exciting, uh, especially you know, to take a, a more preventative approach, more like what we do uh, in, in, the, you know, in the prevention of uh, heart attack and stroke with hyperlipidemia agents, instead of our original paradigms where we wait till somebody 
uh, is in trouble uh, and then intervene, if we can keep them out of trouble, it makes sense there'd be less uh, morbidity and potentially uh, better outcomes long term. Uh, let's look at the clinical implications with a patient case. Uh, uh, here we have uh, a 54-year-old uh, lady presents with diabetic retinopathy evaluation in May of 2017. Her hemoglobin A1C is a very South Texas 10.1. Uh, uh, blood pressure is 150 over 97, our typical triad of hypertension, diabetes, and obesity. And she's got slightly elevated BUN and creatinine with protein in the urine. Uh, past medical history, it might be uh, no surprise. She's got some coronary artery disease, hyperlipidemia, and hypertension. She comes in with a visual acuity of 2030 in the right eye and 2040 in the left eye. Here's her pictures, uh, and uh, uh, as you can see, you see a cotton wool spot uh, just uh, in the left eye. You see dot plot hemorrhages. You see venous beating. Uh, uh, at this magnification, I'm not seeing neovascularization. And here's her fluorescein angiogram showing capillary non-perfusion, the dark areas, uh, with a, a little bit of neovascularization of the optic nerve here. They're blooming, uh, uh, which is uh, a high-risk criteria if it was just a little more. So uh, Rishi described to me, uh, uh, like, in this type of patient, uh, uh, what are their options? And, uh, and with, if you're following panorama, how would you recommend treating this patient? You can tell that this patient would qualify as a patient who either has um, moderate to severe non-proliferative disease, certainly in the, in the left eye, but potentially pre-proliferative disease of non-high-risk characteristics in the right eye. And for me, uh, this patient was illustrative of, of what we were able to show in Panorama. Um, this patient was actually initiated on monthly anti-VEGF treatments, and then we extended them over a period of time. And as we extended the period of time, we realized from Panorama that we were able to go even to 16-week intervals and achieve a great amount of two-step retinopathy scoring in these patients and improvement in the retinopathy scoring as a result of going even longer treatment intervals. And that's exactly what we did with this patient. We treated this patient with bilateral anti-VEGF treatments over the course of this uh, patient's core, uh, treatment interval. And we saw a significant rate of improvement of the retinopathy, as you can see here. Now, uh, you mentioned there are alternatives, and the alternatives were discussed with this patient. I mean, we could just watch this patient and see if they progress to proliferative disease over the next year or two. The chance of that happening is actually a pretty high rate. It's about 50% at two years. So if we just waited for this patient to develop that vision-threatening complication, that might mean significant morbidity uh, for the patient with regards to their visual issues. It might mean time off of work. It might be the inability to drive. And so rather than doing that, we decided to initiate anti-VEGF therapy in this patient to see what sort of outcome we could achieve with this patient over time. Uh, that's a great, uh, great outcome and, and, uh, and a great uh, uh, learning lesson that the results of panorama is that applies to a clinical patient. A lot of doctors are reticent to start anti-VEGF, uh, but you see here, you really turned her around. So in talking about our colleagues out there, like when should our patients with diabetic retinopathy be referred to a retina specialist? Dave, I, I think that I, I always talk to my referral colleagues about trying to get that patient in earlier. Um, there are a couple of things that have really revolutionized our field. Uh, the first is obviously OCT and being able to see diabetic macroedema much more readily than biomicroscopic exams. The second is that we have uh, ultra-wide field imaging and fluorescein angiography through that. And we've been able to see patients who have early proliferative disease much faster and more rapidly, I, I believe, than before because of these new modalities.
And so as a result, we're able to pick up patients in the early proliferative stage versus waiting for frank vitreous hemorrhage or tractional attachments to develop. And lastly, the revolution of anti-VEGF therapy has improved our ability to achieve retinopathy improvements as a result of treating these patients over time and prevent some of these vision-threatening complications we discussed, including center-involving diabetic macular edema or vitreous hemorrhage or proliferative disease requiring vitrectomy. So for now, I recommend most patients with either mild to moderate to severe non-proliferative disease get referred to the retina specialist from the general ophthalmologist so we can at least take a look and evaluate uh, with an angiogram and with other modalities if this patient's at risk of developing proliferative disease soon. Uh, that can help us uh, sort of scale and, and determine if the patient needs to come back in a more rapid fashion. And if the patient has mild disease, we can certainly relegate them back to the general ophthalmologist to follow. But if they have moderate to severe disease, we might discuss the use of anti-VEGF therapy in that patient because of the uh, bigger bang for the buck you can get for the anti-VEGF treatment option in that patient because you have a significant number of patients who can develop a two-step improvement in retinopathy score. And obviously, we want to weed out those who have proliferative disease, which I think has become uh, incredibly hard and certainly a lot easier to figure out now with the use of ultra-wide field angiography in these patients uh, during their, their screening period. I do discuss with the patients that obviously the, as you mentioned, the, um, the canary in the coal mine sort of analogy works well. We're seeing the level of retinopathy in their eyes, but this means that they have neuropathy and nephropathy that needs to be evaluated and managed. And we know that uh, retinopathy itself is an independent risk factor for cardiovascular risk of mortality. So I do work with their primary care physician, their endocrinologist. I do inform them of their retinopathy progression rates. I do talk about the use of anti-VEGFs with them so that they're aware of the side effects and complications that can occur sometimes with these drugs. Quite rare, but again, uh, reported. And certainly I want to make sure that the primary care doctor is aware of them. And I work with them hand in hand to sort of treat the retinopathy while discussing their optimization of their systemic medications and management, as you talked about before, and getting their hemoglobin A1C to the target values we hope to achieve uh, by the recommendations. Rishi, thank you very much for joining me today. It's great being here, Dave, and thank you for having me. This activity was provided in partnership with the National Eye Institute of the National Institutes of Health of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and Prova Education. To receive your free CME credit, be sure to complete the post-test and evaluation at reachmd.com slash iHealthAcademy. This is CME on ReachMD. Be part of the knowledge.